Amen. Well, you may be seated, church. Good morning. Uh, let's take some time to pray before we dive into the sermon this morning. Father, I thank you that uh, we are able to gather together this morning to worship you. Lord, I pray uh, that your word would come alive for us, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would move in our hearts, and that we would uh, just have our ears opened, our eyes to see, and our hearts just open to receive your word and to receive you this morning, God, that you would uh, just continue to grow our affections for you and our affections for the people around us, Lord, that we would love one another, that we would pursue people, and that you would continue to use us on the mission that you have sent us on, God. Uh, we pray and we ask this in your beautiful name. Uh, well, church, um, a couple of years back, I went to my very first Kansas City Chiefs game. Uh, and as uh, my buddy kind of texted me, he's like, hey, you want to go to the game with me? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Never been. So it's a preseason game. And I'm driving down to KC, start to see there's tons of traffic. And this is before they actually won the Super Bowl. So it's the year leading up to their Super Bowl win. So I'm kind of confused why there's so much traffic all over the place. We pull up to the stadium, and it's an absolute madhouse. Like, there are cars everywhere. The place is kind of packed. So we walk into uh, where the stadium, kind of the, like the arena on the outside. Uh, we're eating food. We're hanging out. I'm kind of observing everything and just enjoying the atmosphere. But then I start to notice that there's a couple of different signs around the outside. And I start seeing on the shirts of people that it says, uh, Chief's Kingdom. And it kind of started weirding me out because I don't know a lot about the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of the Chiefs, but I was just kind of looking and I was just like, why do they call it Kingdom? That, that's kind of weird. And so my stomach starts feeling a little goofy because I'm like, okay, they call it the Kingdom. But we're enjoying our time. We're eating food. And then we get to the spot to where we're about to walk into the stadium where we're handing off our tickets. And right at the top where you walk in, I start to I see another sign that says you are now entering the kingdom, and again I'm kind of like, this is just weird. Why are they calling this place the kingdom? And so my buddy Lance and I we start talking about football. We both enjoy the sport. We love watching it. So we're talking about the sport. We're like, ain't it kind of weird that we pay a lot of money to come watch some dudes beat each other up and throw a ball around? Like, how, how kind of weird is that? And then I start to notice the actual stadium itself is built like a Roman Colosseum. And we sit there, and I was like, oh, oh my gosh, we're in Rome. Like, we're literally paying dollars to watch these dudes beat each other up and yell and scream and hoop and holler at them. And, and at the center of it all, there's one guy who's leading the team, and it's Patrick Mahomes. And everybody's just super stoked about it with their signs everywhere. And they call themselves a kingdom. And in the middle of all of that, I started thinking, oh my gosh. Because my heart started to break for kind of the people in the room, and even for myself, as I started thinking, We've lifted this place so high that we call it the kingdom. We, we enjoy and worship this sport so much that we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars into watching athletes continue to just run after. And, and I'm not trying to tear down football because I love football. I love watching it. But it, it started to hit me in, in the middle of my stomach that, man, there were so many people who were looking out and watching this game 
who just absolutely worshipped every single aspect of it. The players, the atmosphere, the screaming, the yelling, like the excitement behind it all. And my heart broke because I thought, man, these people have no idea what the kingdom of God looks like. And they had this totally, like there was just probably hundreds of people who were in the stadium with me who were screaming for, for a man who fails often. And yet they had no idea about the king who never fails. And so as I was processing through this, I thought, okay, I got to quit judging all these people for thinking that they're lifting like this idol up. And I started, as, as I'm processing even Acts chapter 17 this week, I was like, well, what are the idols in my life? What are the things that, that I myself struggle with that I have idols of? You know, maybe for me, it's not necessarily Chiefs football, but it's Texas football. I love Texas football. That's an idol that I lift up way up high. I know you're all shaking your heads and you're angry at me. And that's because you all love Husker football, right? And that's that, like, if we look at our own city, that's a huge idol that we have. Am I wrong? Like, that's something that we've placed in such a place where we should only look to Jesus in that way. And, and I'm not trying to shame us. I'm not trying to uh, totally beat us over the head with it. But I'm just saying, uh, like, there are things in our lives that we start to look at and lift up and say, wow, I love that so much. And, and we almost place it above God, and even with money or success, like these are other things that I was trying to think through. What are my own idols? What are things in my own life that I, that I struggle with? Money, success, I, I love having a good lawn. I want people's approval. I want to be considered funny. There's all these things that I start to go, yeah, I want all of this, and this is going to be the thing that I worship and, and, and seek after. And so as I think of just even our city and, and thinking of the things that we as a people here in our community that we worship, I start wrestling with it all and just go, man, there's, there's so many things that we put in place of where Jesus should be in our lives. Whether it's Husker sports and it's 19 and 20 year old people that we uh, get ridiculous over when we don't win a game and it ruins our whole day, or, or whether it's food and there's hundreds of different places to eat in the city of Lincoln and we just love talking about the different places that we can go eat and how amazing they are, or, or maybe it's like kids' activities, because I, it, I challenge you to go drive around Lincoln and just kind of start looking around. There's places on every corner that are basically screaming and hollering for you to plug your kid in to get him involved or her involved so that way uh, they can just continuously do stuff. Or even in school, that just leads us to just keep going, okay, kid has this this night and they have that. And then it starts to run your calendar and runs your entire day and actually drives what you do and make your decisions throughout the week. There's things all over the place that crave our attention that we start to lift up and love and worship and enjoy in a way that we should only enjoy Jesus. We get our eyes fixated on these things of this world that keep clamoring after our attention. And so today in Acts 17, we're going to see how Paul walks into Athens and how his heart breaks for the people of Athens because they have idols that they looked after. They have things that they've worshipped and, and seen. And so his heart breaks for the people. So the big question I want to ask us this morning. The big question I want all of us to ask for ourselves is, does our heart break for people? So if you would, uh, please grab your Bibles. Let's open up to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we're going to read, and, and starting in verse 16 all the way through verse 21. It says this, 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others reply, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So previously in Acts chapter 16, Paul's in Berea. He gets taste out of Berea, so he ends up in Athens where he's waiting for his buddies, Timothy and Silas, to join him. Now, while he's waiting in Athens for them, he starts to notice all of these idols that are kind of all over the place, different gods that they worship, these, uh, these temples that they've kind of built on the high hills that they go to sacrifice to these gods. And, and while he's noticing all of this, he's deeply distressed. He dis, he's disturbed by all of this attention that these idols get, the fact that they're worshiping these gods rather than the true God. And so, of course, this then leads Paul to keep going by his M.O., so he goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. Then he goes to the marketplace to talk to the people there, and so he meets some of the people there that are philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, Epicureans, just to kind of give us a feel for what they were like, they, they were very materialistic. They enjoyed the pleasures of this world. Something like a phrase that maybe would describe an Epicurean would be uh, a phrase like, you only live once. Or if it feels good, you should just do it. Sound a little familiar? Kind of like the lifestyle we currently live in. The Stoics, uh, they were pretty calm people. They were pretty chill. Um, So they would, phrases that would describe someone who was a Stoic philosopher maybe would be something like, yeah, whatever happens, happens. Or or, "Ah, there's just, you can't do anything about it anyway, so just keep living life, right? They're kind of like chill uh, kind of people, but Paul is talking with these philosophers, and he's reasoning with them, and it's actually a different reaction than what we've seen in the book of Acts so far. He, he's not getting beat up. Like, he's just having actual conversations with these people and kind of going back and forth about what they believe. Now, they do mock him, and, and they don't understand what he says, and so they ask him, hey, we just need you to explain a little more. So they take him to the Areopagus, which is essentially like this place where philosophers would go to debate. There's a lot of other rich, cool history with it, but for the purposes of, of this message, just know that it's a place where philosophers would continue to have conversations because it, we know that Athens and the, the people of Greece, right, are actually like a lot of rich history comes from there. There's actually a lot of great minds and ideas that have come from that. And we see why, because the scripture tells us that they loved learning new things. Now, what leads Paul to go have conversations with all these people? It, right? He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace. He goes to these philosophers at the Areopagus. But what really leads him to go have these conversations. Sure, the Great Commission, Jesus has sent him on a mission, go make disciples, right? He, he says, go to the ends of the earth, continue to share the truth. But I think verse 16 really hints at what Paul's heart is in terms of going to these people. Verse 16 tells us that Paul is disturbed and distressed at the worship of other idols. 
it tells us that his heart breaks for these people that they're not worshiping Jesus, that they're worshiping these other gods. They have these statues all over town that they sit and they worship. And so I, I think a question for us to even wrestle with is, what are the idols in our own life? What are the things that we lift up in place of where God should be? How do you find out what exactly that you worship? What, how do you find out maybe what you yourself has as, as an idol? Tim Keller says, uh, the things that you find yourself daydreaming about in your spare time are the things that you serve. The things that you most often find yourself daydreaming about are the things that you serve or idols that you may have. Maybe a question to wrestle with is, what do you delight in? What do you love? What do you really enjoy being a part of or being connected to or watching or, or participating in? What are those things that maybe you have great affection for that you just have to check, man, have I made an idol of this? Right? There, there's great good things, like enjoying football, it does not have to be an idol. But there's moments where we've created them into this object of worship where we paint all our attention on them. Or maybe another question to check yourself with is, is saying, do you ever say, if I had that, then my life would be good? If I had that, then I would have security and everything would be okay. Maybe it's money. That's kind of the easy one to place in that sentence, right? If I had that much money or that job that pays that much or that perfect career, then everything would be perfect. And I would never have to worry again. Or maybe it's just relationships within your family. Like if you ever think, man, if they leave me, if they go away, my life will be completely ruined. If I disappoint them or if they listen or don't listen to what I'm trying to instruct them to live their life as, and it just breaks your heart to the bottom of your core, man, have you maybe lifted them up to a place to where you worship them so much that you've placed them above Jesus? Or, or another question is, what are you okay sacrificing for? What are you okay sacrificing for? Maybe one to paint this picture is a job or a career. You say, man, I want my family to be okay, so I'm going to work long hours. I'm going to continue to uh, pursue my job and just work really, really hard and put all my effort and thought and work uh, time to just thinking about my career so that I can continue to get the promotion and get the money so that way my family will be well off. Well, you're sacrificing time with your family or time in relationships with the community around you that God has given to you. What are you okay sacrificing for? What are you willing to sacrifice for? That's examining our own idols, and we all have them, and it's actually extremely important for all of us, all of us, to regularly check into our own hearts, to our own lives, to see, what am I worshiping? Because if we're honest with ourselves, each and every single one of us has them. We all have things that we look to, whether it's, it's your spouse or your children or your job or success or whatever it is for you. We all have things that sometimes we fall so in love with that we worship them and place them on a pedestal. And we think, if that leaves me, if I never have that anymore, my life will be completely ruined. It'll just completely go away. And as we start thinking about these things, we need to notice that these idols actually rob us of authentic worship to God and being completely satisfied in who he is in our relationship with him. 
So if we as Christians, if we as believers who know the one true God, who see him for who he is, who do deeply love him and have authentic worship for him, struggle with having idols, what about the people who don't know Christ? who are just absolutely captivated by the things of this world that they've lifted up so high, that they have so much affection for, that they look to as a thing to satisfy them with all of their being. What about them? Are we as brokenhearted as Paul is in this story for them and their worship and love of idols while they don't know Christ? While they're putting all their affection in these things that don't actually uh, give them true through life. So uh, I want to ask a question. Think of the people that you regularly pray for or people that you regularly pursue and desire to have conversations with about Jesus who don't know Christ. Think about those people. Maybe it's your one from the challenge we kind of gave of the who's your one this year that you're just begging God to save, to redeem, to bring to new life. What, why is it that you pursue them? Why is it that you relentlessly think about them and pray for them and ask God to move in their lives? It's because you care for them, right? Because you have a deep affection and love for them. That's why you would probably pursue maybe a, a, a sister or brother or, or a friend who's near and dear to you more than you pursue your neighbor or more than you pursue like someone who you regularly see like at your coffee shop. These are, these, these are people that you have a deep affection for, so you run after them harder than you run after other people. But Paul here in this passage, he has no relationship with these people, and yet his heart is broken for them to come to know Jesus, because they're worshiping all these other gods. You know, I, I think for me, if I'm honest, there's people who are all around me, whether it's neighbors or people at the grocery store that I regularly see, or all over, that I don't know if I have that same heart that Paul has for them. I just kind of think, yeah, they're serving me. They're giving me what I need. They probably have an okay life. I'm just going to keep going, and I'm just going to keep walking. And I, I want to challenge all of us to start taking some time to actually pray that God would give us a heart for them, that God would create a heart in us that we would have a deep affection and love for the people who we don't know to be brokenhearted to the point to where we just have this raw desire to build relationships with them, to, be, to spend intimate time with them so that they would come to know Christ, so that we would be intentional in our time with them. Because we can't create this heart in ourselves. We're, we're selfish. We think about ourselves so much. So I want to challenge us to actually start taking time to ask the Lord to give us the same heart that he has for them to give us a love and affection for those who are in our life and just around us just as much as we love the people who are near and dear to us, that we would be brokenhearted for all who don't know Jesus so that we would pursue them relentlessly and ask God to use us in their lives. Now, as we think of sharing Christ with others, as we think of going and pursuing people, I think there's a couple of things from this passage that we can learn from Paul. So uh, let's just take some time to keep reading to see how Paul runs after people. Verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. 
For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he, in, uh, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live under or to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day where he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Aeropagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So as we walk through this section in the book of Acts, there's four things that I take away from Paul's gospel presentation, how Paul shares with them, that I want to challenge us with. So I want to challenge you to maybe write these down. We give you the pieces of paper so that you would take notes. Hopefully you can refer back to it and just think through this as you go out and share the gospel on your own time, as you evangelize in your own life. And when I say evangelize or share the gospel or share Christ or proclaim Christ, now I think we kind of use that language and some people go, oh, I don't like the word evangelism. It sounds hokey pokey and old so I'm going to say it this way. That's fine, but we need to have like a, a, a general definition for us so we know exactly that we're on the same page. So anytime that Ricky or I or whoever talks about sharing the gospel, evangelism, sharing Christ, proclaiming Christ, this is what we mean. We mean this definition. When I use the word evangelism, I mean it, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to invite. Teaching the gospel with the aim to invite someone a relationship with Jesus. So uh, what we're going to see here, the first thing that I notice with Paul's section here in verses 22 and 23 is that he listens. He listens to the people. He observes them. He gets to know them. He, he starts to notice, right, in verse 22 that they're religious. He says, hey, I noticed that you're religious. I, I've observed the city. I've looked around. I see that you worship idols and that you worship specifically this unknown God that's here. He hasn't just spent the last several days in Athens just kind of hanging out, eating falafels, walking around the street. Maybe he's eating falafels and actually uh, exploring the city and getting to know them, but he's, he's being intentional with his time there. He's not just simply ready to just kind of swing the big Bible bat that he's got to come over their heads with, but he's 
actually listening to who they are. He's observing what they worship. He's taking in the fact that they have real minds, that they think through these things, and he wants to know why they think what they think. He's observing and understanding that. In verse 28, he even quotes from their poets in verse 28. He, he takes their culture and he meets them where they're at. He takes intentional time to run after them. He doesn't just quote scripture at them. His approach to how he shares the gospel with the Greeks is much different than how he reasons with the Jews in the synagogues. Because with the Jews, they know scripture. So they can, he can talk to them about scripture and what, how the scriptures all point to Jesus. But with the Greeks, he takes it down to bare bones. And he goes all the way back to creation to tell them in the simplest terms who this God is. And so for us to kind of take into consideration when we're having gospel conversations with people, they're not going to know all the Christian language that we use. They're not going to speak the same language. And so for us to actually be aware of that and, and to know, okay, they, they might not know what the word sin means. They might not know what repentance is. I need to be able to explain these things to them. And they might not know what I mean by when I talk about Jesus rising from the dead. Like th these are things we should consider and actually for us to apply as, as we start thinking of our conversations to listen to who they are, to tune in and observe what their culture is like. Because all these people that we have conversations with and have in our life, they, they have past. They have past experience with churches or with Christians or with uh, different, uh, different uh, just religions in general. And so for us to sit and to listen, why they believe what they believe, how they've gotten to their, where they're at, it is extremely important because they're not just bodies who are sitting there in front of us, but they're actual souls that God deeply cares about, that we should care about as well. That we should take time to listen and observe and to ask them questions, to get to know them, to learn and to study even what they believe, to go the extra step, to find common ground. Paul finds the common ground. He, he knows that they worship a God. He sees that they're religious. He knows that he's religious. He, he explores their poets, and he finds common ground even within the poetry and the language that's used in the Greek poetry. So there's a, a teacher who's part of our church who told me about a year ago that uh, she has a lot of students who are Muslim. And so she went to the point to pick up a book of a guy who converted, who was a Muslim, and, and converted to Christianity, and she wanted to learn what was it that led him to come to know Jesus? How did his uh, framework of being a Muslim and worshiping some other God lead him to then seeing how Jesus was better and Jesus was the true God? And she wanted to do this so that she could actually relate to her students and have a real relationship and get to know them a little better and be able to answer some questions if, if God ever opened the door. She took the extra step to study to explore, to get to know her students, to meet them where they're at so that she would be prepared for conversations. So ask questions. Ask, study maybe about different religions. If you're, if you're in a world that's maybe saturated with people who are in a different religious space, then do some homework. Ask them why they believe what they believe, how they got there, what, what led them to their conclusions. What, simple questions. Hey, why do you believe that? Who defines what you've considered good? Uh, what do, why do you think that humans keep failing in that area? What led you to that belief? 
Just keep digging deeper, question after question after question. You'd be surprised how much people start to open up if you just keep asking a little more. And listen to the answers. Don't just be prepared to give a defense like right away. I, I, sometimes when I'm hearing, like I'm talking to people, and I don't know if this happens, maybe it happens to me in my marriage, which it shouldn't, but like my wife and I will be having a conversation and I'm like thinking of how to beat her answer already. She's like halfway into, and, and I'm not actually listening to her. So take time to actually listen. Don't be like me, but take time to actually listen to the response and to consider their response. So the first thing we see is listen. The second thing that we see in verses 23 to 24 is Paul reveals. He reveals. So he talks to the Greeks about how their Greek God, their unknown God, is insufficient. He's insufficient. He goes to the point to where he calls their worship of him ignorant. And this may sound really harsh, but basically how the Athenians would worship this God and make these altars to him is that they would send the sheep kind of wild throughout the city. Wherever the sheep would sit and lay, they would go and sacrifice the sheep right there in that spot, and that's where they would build the altar for it. And it's basically kind of a God that's a catch-all God for them. You see, the the Athenians had had gods for wisdom, money, sex, knowledge, victory, and this God was kind of a catch-all. Well, if we missed anything, here's a sacrifice to the unknown God. And so this is what Paul sees here, and Paul reveals to them how flawed that is. He says, if there's a God, he's God over all things, not just God over one thing. He is the creator, and he's not unknowable. He is knowable. So he starts to reveal this truth to them that God is Lord of all creation, that he's not kept in some temple or some building. Uh, By the way, God's not kept to a church building, and a church building is not God's house, but that's a sermon for another day. And God's not created by human hands. In verse 29, he says that God is not like silver or gold or stone or something that we can try to make up in our own imaginations. Because so often, we start to imagine who God is, right? If your God never disagrees with something that you think, he's probably not actually the true God. There are things in scripture that I read and I go, oh, I kind of, we, this happened in our sermon prep meeting this last week. Something came up and I was like, I don't know that I like that so much, but it's truth. And so I take God for who he is and who he says he is rather than making him my own God that just says, yeah, he agrees with absolutely everything I think. Like God should cause you to wrestle within yourself. And so he's not just made up in our own imagination. So Paul starts to reveal this to them And so as you're asking questions, as you're listening and having conversations with people, maybe it's gotten to the point to where you've asked so many questions that they start to see that their own reasoning and their own God that they worship is somewhat flawed. And if not, hopefully you've gotten to the point to where you've started to see how Jesus actually is the better God and the true God within these conversations. And you can start to reveal and expose some of the flaws that are in their false religion or in these things that they worship and, and, and just love and have affection for to reveal and show how Jesus is so much better. Maybe there's someone who, who they just want to be all inclusive. And so they say all the gods, actually all the religions have the same God. They're, all the roads lead to God. And you can sit there and speak into that and say, actually, that's not all inclusive because every other major world religion would completely disagree with that. 
And so you're actually being exclusive by saying you're being inclusive, and it just doesn't make any sense. Or, or maybe there's someone who worships money and success. You could ask the question and say, hey, people who actually have money and success, what, what's their life like? Do you want to live the same lifestyle that they have? Because celebrities and, and uh, famous athletes, they, they struggle with alcohol, they struggle with drug abuse, depression, all this stuff. Tom Brady, after winning his third Super Bowl several years ago, said there has to be something more to life. That that stuff doesn't actually satisfy, and you're just going to keep wanting more and more and more. You see, asking questions and getting people to open up and share with you who they are, what they believe, and how they got there allows you to speak into it and to reveal some of the flaws in what they believe. And some of the flaws, and it allows you to reveal that their idol is actually much less than who Jesus actually is. And Jesus is what they truly desire, who they truly desire, and who they're seeking after. So the next thing we see is the, the third one. So first two, to listen. Second one, to reveal. The third one is to actually share. Paul starts to share the greatness of our God in verses 25 and 27. He begins to talk to them how God's the creator of the universe, how he's the sustainer of all things. He's given life. He doesn't need us, yet he created us and keeps us alive by giving us the breath in our lungs to breathe every single second, that God's in control over all of creation. And I love verse 27. I absolutely love verse 27 because it shows us that we all crave something and that God is not far from us. He's not far from anyone that he is so near to us, and we try to reach out and find him. We try to seek after him. Everybody tries to seek after something because God has hardwired it into our hearts, into our DNA, into who we are to seek after something, to be captivated by him and him alone. This isn't just for the Athenians, but this is for all people to seek after something. I think that's why we get so fixated on things so easily. Isn't it just super easy to sit in front of the TV and just be drawn in by Netflix? And when it asks you if you're still watching, you're just like, how do I shut that feature off? Of course I'm still watching. I, I don't want you to make me second guess it. I'm just trying to take it in. I'm trying to binge watch. I'm trying to get rid of my day. And we so easily get captivated by things of this world and by a TV that's just sitting right in front of us. Even babies and young children, right? You put a phone in front of them, their eyes are glued to it, drawn to it. An infant, like a newborn baby, even they look at the lights and they just are captivated by the light because they're drawn to see something, to have their attention just completely focused on one thing. And so for us to clearly see that the light that the TV or cell phone or, or even the light bulbs in this room draw us to is nothing compared to the light that Jesus offers us. Absolutely nothing compared to that. So as you have those conversations, don't just simply reveal how their worship doesn't satisfy, but share how, the good, how good and great our God is. To actually step into those conversations and contrast how God is so much better than the God that they worship right? Money is temporary, but Jesus is eternal, right? Tell how family will always fail and fall because they're just as sinful as you are, but Jesus will never fail and fall. Talk about how other religions are all based 
on you doing good works and trying to be a good person and a better person in order to earn God's approval. And yet for us in following Jesus, he's the one who did all the work and we get to be covered by his righteousness. And we can contrast in these conversations to actually speak with people about who Jesus is, that we share the greatness of who our God is and share how amazing and how uh, absolutely beautiful and wonderful it is that we have a God who did all the work for us, to proclaim him and him alone. So the fourth thing that we see that leads us uh, really to the end of the conversation, the fourth observation is that Paul invites. Paul invites. This is easily probably the hardest part of it all. This is the hardest part of it all because in verse 30 and 31, we see Paul make the invitation to come and follow Jesus and uh, he says that God has, not, uh, God has overlooked your ignorance. So he's not saying that God was okay with them sinning or that God didn't know they were sinning, but he's saying God could have struck you down for worshiping these other gods, but out of his mercy, he didn't. And now you have the opportunity to repent of your sin, to come to worship the actual true God. And so Paul is calling them into repentance here. He brings forward the judgment day that God will judge the world by one man, namely Jesus. God created the world through one man, Adam, and has filled the world through Adam, but now Jesus will come back to bring restoration to the entire world, and he gives the invitation to respond to the gospel, to respond to Jesus himself. And if I'm honest, talking about the judgment of God, sometimes is like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to bring that up. It kind of sounds scary. Like that, that doesn't sound like super fun. And sometimes we think that's actually like bad news. Do we not? Because we've seen it come to the complete opposite way where we've heard stories of people basically being scared to the point to where they're like, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. And they just kind of try to instill this fear into people. And so we've completely overcorrected and just go, well, I'm not going to talk about God as judge at all. But it's actually a good thing that we know that God judges the world. And it's actually a good thing for us to bring this up. And this is actually good news because there's an opportunity to turn from their sin. And it's actually good news for the Christian because in Christ, we're not condemned. And in Christ, we have eternal life and forgiveness of sin, something that we don't deserve. We have everything as a free gift of God. And it's not bad news for us to make the invitation for them to respond. So don't share people short. Don't just let them walk away, but actually invite them to respond to who Jesus is and actually ask them to say, would you like to make this decision today? Would you like to follow Christ? Would you like to give your life to him? What do you think about all that? What do you think about Jesus? Because what they do with Jesus is the greatest question they'll ever answer. The biggest question they have in their whole life is to answer the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because Jesus is offering them the free gift through you, by your words, by your actual conversation, to make the invitation, to make a decision on what they're going to do with Christ. Remember, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to invite them to a life that worship Jesus. Don't just walk away. Don't sell them short, but actually ask them to make a decision for Christ. And maybe they say, hey, I just need some more time to think about this all. Cool, let's get coffee next week. Let's come back to it. Let, let me know if you have more questions. Continue to pursue and run after them. The love of Christ that compels us 
challenges us to run after people, to ask God to actually give us the same heart that he has for people to invite others to see the love of Jesus. And so I want to make that very same invitation to the room this morning. I want to make that same invitation that if you've been made aware of an idol that's in your own life and in your own heart this morning, whether it's money, your kids, sex, career, people's approval, would you lay that down this morning? Would you completely lay that down today and give it up? Would you see that uh, no matter how much you make, you'll always want more and you'll never be satisfied and you're just going to want to keep climbing for more money and more things because it, it doesn't satisfy you. It doesn't make you whole, but the riches and the glories of Christ does satisfy, does fulfill, is perfect, is all good, is eternal. Would you come to see that people's approval will never actually feed your soul, but the Father approves of you completely because of the work of what Jesus has done? Would you come to see that people will fail you time and time again, time and time again, because they're broken, messy people just like you are, and Jesus will never fail you that he gives you hope and life eternally with him and he's always there for you. Would you come to see the truth that Jesus satisfies completely, that he is worthy and deserving of all worship? And if you've worshiped some other God, if you've lifted up some other thing or some other person and thought that they were God, or if maybe you've thought that you could just be a good enough person and you want to appeal to God and give your good works over to him and say, here's my Christian resume. Now, please let me in. Would you rest in the fact that Jesus has done all the work for you? And it's not about your work for him, but it's all about the work that he did for you, that you could have eternal life as a free gift and you can't overcome the debt that you owe him. But he said, it's paid in full through his death and resurrection, that you could have a true life with Christ. Would you give your life to Jesus today? Would you actually take time to consider, what am I going to do with Jesus? Because that's the greatest question you'll ever ask yourself. And you can respond in one of three ways. You can ridicule and deny Jesus and walk away from him. Like we see in the next section, verses 32 and 34, or you can ponder and ask more questions and come back next week or ask someone to get coffee to talk about it. Or you can give your life faithfully to Christ and give him everything and know that he's the one true God and lay your life down for him and him alone. Paul loves the people so much that he cares for them. He wants something more for them. He wants what's best for them. His heart for people leads him to share Christ with them, to make the invitation so that they would respond to who Jesus is. My prayer for all of us this morning, that we would ask God to give us the same heart that he has for all people, that we would pursue people, we would listen to them, that we would reveal to them, that we would share with them, that we would invite them to come to know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we are able to read from your scriptures, Lord, and hear your word. God, I thank you that you've come to give us a free gift of life everlasting with you. I thank you that you are a God worthy of worshiping. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who have hearts like you have, to relentlessly pursue others who are around us, God, that our heart would break for those who don't know you. Lord, I pray 
And I beg that you would give us that heart so that we would desire, just have a raw desire to proclaim Christ to them, to listen to them, to get to know them, to build relationships, to reveal to them how their God does not actually satisfy, to share the greatness of who you are, and to invite them into a relationship with you, Lord. I pray that you would use us on mission here in Lincoln, God, that we would continue to go forward with your gospel and that you would use us and that you would save more people. We pray this in your beautiful name.